Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Green and Red. Uh, this is Scott Parkin, one of your co-hosts. Today, we're going to be talking about the strikes going on at the University of California, and we're joined by three grad students uh, who have been out on strike. Uh, we're joined by Kaylee Hong and Carolina Talavera, who are in the anthropology department at UC Berkeley. And we're joined by Carlos, who is a, a second-year PhD student and fired wildcat at UC Santa Cruz. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host... Hi, this is uh, Bob Bezenko in Ohio right now, and uh, looking forward to this. I am, uh, as you know, a longtime university professor, and without TAs, without grad students, um, I can't tell you, I probably wouldn't be a longtime university professor. They do amazing work. They, they along with the electricians and plumbers, are the most vital people in the university, so I, I'm looking forward to talking uh, to them, and I really do... Uh, value and appreciate and respect what they're doing. And I hope this becomes a model across the country because grad students and, and contingent faculty uh, are really exploited more than anybody in university. Maybe we could start just like a um, round of intros and maybe talk about why you have joined the strike. And let's start with uh, UC Berkeley. Hi, so I'm Kaylee. Um, I really got involved, I think, in the strike um, because a close friend and colleague of mine is a UC Santa Cruz student in the comp lit department who was on a, a study, a language uh, program with me last semester. And he was the one, was on one of the original mailing lists where students were uh, responding to um, faculty um, sort of responses about concerns about living costs and the escalating concern which ultimately led to the wildcat strike and for me I was really compelled by the the situation in Santa Cruz um, and then when I came back to Berkeley in the spring semester um, after the wildcat students um, had been on their grading strike for a couple weeks um, there are a bunch of students from across UC Berkeley also joined in in solidarity. And in general, what's, what's your, um, what's your job? I think a lot of people who either like me, I went to a very small college, you know, for my MBA. So I didn't even know what a TA was until I went to, to graduate school. So what do you guys do? So Carolina and I, I'll just jump in here. Uh, Carolina yeah. and I are both, um, uh, students in, like we said, the anthropology department. And right now we're teaching a very large intro class to sociocultural anthropology, which is also a course for American cultures. So right. we get a whole range of students that are there, not only anthropology students, but a, a ton of students from, from STEM, from a range of different social studies departments who are there for um, basically like a, a, a reading um, a requirement, writing requirement. And we don't lecture, of course. The professor lectures to a class of about 400 students, but we do all the grading. Um, we do all the sections. So each of us are responsible 
for three sections of approximately 17 students each. And we're really the ones that interact on a regular basis with students, um, helping them go through the materials, helping them walk through discussion. And like I said, ultimately uh, grading and giving any kind of comment uh, on their work. Right. Right. Now, and that was my point. You guys are doing a lot of work in the course of a week and you're, I mean, as a professor, we mostly come in, we kind of lecture, we're kind of like performers. And then you guys are all the, like the, the, the people behind the scenes, you know, the grips and the, uh, like a movie, you know? So I just, I wanted people to understand just how, how much you do. And with a class of 400, I have classes of 300 with two TAs. So, um, it's, it's a lot. And especially, and you're doing your own work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and what's, what's your workload at um, uh, Santa Cruz, Carlos? Oh man, it's a it's it's a handful. So so yeah, we 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 went out to to fight for this cost of living adjustment, this cola, right? Um, just due to the fact that yeah, um, we, a lot of us see this us being students and you know student workers, this duality of a relationship with the university as a full time job. Um, so we're you know we're expected to perform at a high level in our seminars. We're expected to, um, to you know, perform at a high level with our own research, right, and have our own project, you know, get off the ground and be nice and sharp, while at the same time, we're supposed to maintain ourselves off of, uh, at least over here in Santa Cruz, we get paid about $2,000 a month after taxes. Um, you know, in, in a place where your rent is about $1,500, $1,600, or $1,400, so that, uh, that puts you in an automatic uh, deficit, uh, deficit out here. So a lot of us, you know, organize around that. And in terms of our job duties, so yeah, we're responsible for the grading for pretty much the, the maintaining of the material, you know, with the course from the day to day. Just like you said, professors come in, they do the lecture, a lecture they, they've done probably a hundred times and, and the students are trying to get caught up. So we're pretty much that, we're pretty much that buffer where, where we help them understand the, the content in terms of, you know, what they're reading, what they're hearing in the lecture and, you know, the understanding of it. So Pretty much the way I see it, you know, our, our working conditions are the undergrads' learning conditions. We're not trying to drive Ferraris and Lamborghinis around Santa Cruz. You know, we're just trying to to pay rent and pay the rest of our bills without without going broke, without going hungry, without taking these massive loans. Right. Does the UC system provide you with any kind of health insurance or anything like that? Yeah, they do. They do. Um, it's, it's a relatively good one from my understanding. Um, you know, um, yeah, so... I would say I mean, that for me, for me, that's pulled away yeah. um, because of the recent firing. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Carolina. Yeah. Sorry. I just was jumping in. It is good health insurance, but they only provide it to you as long as you're teaching. So for example, like I'm just returning from doing dissertation research and I'm about eight months pregnant. And so um, I'm planning on not teaching next year just because I don't think I'll be able to, um, to sort of raise a child um, right away and teach at the same time. And if you go on parental leave, they do not provide you health insurance. That's when you need the most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's something I have to pay out of pocket. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not a great situation when they don't already pay you enough to like save money for these situations. Um, and then to be, you know, finding out that I have to pay out of pocket is kind of ridiculous. Does, does it extend to your family? Does it extend to your partner? Um, so I'm kind of looking at, well, not kind of looking, oh. but my partner is also a grad student at Stanford. And so... Um, he, he's got his health insurance covered, but we would still have to be paying out of pocket for Stanford dependent insurance. And the way that the universities deal with that sort of like 
the disparity of like not paying us enough is that they provide you with these student parent grants that you have to apply for. So you still have to show that you're like in need and it's a very limited fund um, and it's supposed to cover everything from insurance to dependent care to um, housing. So um, it, it's just like more, more work. <laughs> On Green and Red, we like to talk a lot about, um, so we have like critiques of certain institutions. Um, we're particularly crit crit critical of like certain liberal institutions or neoliberal institutions. And Janet, I'm never, I never say her name right, Nap Napolitano, yeah. uh, former Obama cabinet official, former DHS, you know, she's like very much subscribes to um, this sort of neoliberal outlook, which includes, which is to me like things like budget cuts, austerity, and I'm, and I'm wondering, you know, what her role is in the sort of like conflict between the strike and the grad students and the UC. Yeah, so, so given her track record, you know, we know, we know who she is. We know where she came from. Um, so I, I was here at UC Santa Cruz as an undergrad um, at a you know, community college between 2012 and 2014. Um, my last year was her first year here. So I remember, you know, um, us mobilizing against her appointment. Um, in the UC system, right? This is a person who doesn't have um, any background in education, yet she sits at one of the largest um, institutions of education in the country, the UC system. It's the largest employer in California. The largest employer of California, right? So this is, um, I mean, this is a person who we think is, you know, trying to polish up her, her political career. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, knowing, knowing the, destructive, the destructive forces that she comes with, um, being part of um, Homeland Security, and now, you know, facing this, I mean, I don't just see this COLDA movement as a movement for, for labor rights, for labor issues. Um, a lot of us here at UC Santa Cruz have been able to expand this, you know, this fight um, to, to a larger extent. I'm one of the, uh, I mean, co-founders or founding members of COLDA for All here, which, you know, is, is, is a movement that tries to address, you know, the, the racial, social, environmental, and gender inequalities that that are found within the, the university system. Um, so yeah, I mean, she's she's a straight opposition and you know, she showed her cards when when that, that letter came out that she was gonna fire us and that she was um, disappointed, you know, in, in the, the some TAs that are engaging in the strike and you know, we, we pushed it to the limits and you know, they ended up firing us. Uh, they fired about 10% of um, the, the TA workforce here at UC Santa Cruz. Were folks who were fired fired because they were seen as more like agitators or the rabble rousers of the of the people so, out on so strike? The way, the way this went down is that uh, we withheld grades in the fall, meaning that we did not turn in grades for our students in the fall quarter. Um, of course, we had you know certain um, we had certain requirements for those that needed the grades, whether you're on academic probation or or you know financial aid probation. If you're graduating, if you need your transcripts for X reason, Y reason. We didn't really ask questions. We're not detectives. So if a student asked me for, for her, his grades, I, I turned them in. But other than that, we withheld the grades, so we didn't turn into the registrar. Um, so this kind of rolled over into this quarter, uh, the winter quarter, and they gave us uh, a deadline, two deadlines to submit these grades, and about 80 of us didn't do it. Um, out of 200, I think 200 were the, was the original number in the fall quarter that, that didn't, did not uh, submit. And at the end of it was about 80 of us who – who did not, as I said, those grades. So, so there's some students out there from the fall semester, fall quarter, that don't have their grades because uh, we withheld them, and that's pretty much been the, that's that's been the strategy um, to catch the university, the the UC system's uh, attention. 
um, along with our open-ended strike, our, our teaching strike that started on the 10th of February last month. And y'all are, and I think this is both Berkeley and, and Santa Cruz, y'all are organized through United Auto Workers, correct? And, uh, and the, there's also been a, a split between like the Wildcat and the kind of more institutional labor as well, correct? Correct. At least on the Berkeley side, um, the reason for this has been that uh, we all have a no-strike clause in our labor agreement. So that means the union actually cannot be involved in the wildcat strike at all. And in fact, are obligated under the contract to try to get us to return to work. Um, so that uh, there's been some other actions um, that the union has been, on the Berkeley side at least, has been trying to bring um, unfair labor practice, um, uh, like a provision against uh, the UC, but the wildcat strike itself has come up through a, a completely different mechanism, partly because of the way in which uh, unions and uh, contracts are structured here in the US. That's, this is actually a bigger story than, than UC because like, you know, half of the UAW is under indictment right now. Uh, and I think it says a lot about the labor unions in America. So you guys are actually fighting a much bigger fight than you know, simply on your campuses. I'm curious um, about the, the level of, uh, or the reaction or the level of support you've gotten from faculty, because before we went on, I think tell telling Carlos that um, in my experience, and I've been kind of a, a, an activist as well as a professor uh, for a long time, especially on campus, that when I was trying to do stuff and years ago, I was trying to help organize all the, <clears throat> the physical plant workers and the gardeners and the people at UH, um, the, the so-called self-identified radical professors were kind of really the worst. And um, I just wonder like if faculty has been responsive, if uh, any of them have, have taken your side, um, you know, what's kind of the general attitude toward, toward what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, um, just because we've seen, um, so we had, you know, we had our opening the strike for four weeks out here and we had a lot of uh, different police encounters and whatnot. Um, what I can speak on in, in regard to the faculty is that when everything kind of started out, um, the faculty, faculty organizing group sent out um, pretty much a petition, right, of um, asking for solidarity um, for, for, for faculty. And this list had about 400, 400 or so different faculty members across the university sent onto this list. And at first it was, you know, it was, it was, it was nice. It was a nice thing to see. But at the end of, at the end of it, um, that list didn't mean shit in regards to who came out and who showed up for us and who really expressed solidarity, right? Um, this, is, this is a word that's been thrown around so much in the last two months, solidarity, solidarity. Um, so there's been faculty, like you said, you know, who are in the seminar room, in their, in their lectures, in their writings. They, you could, you know, you could confuse them for someone that maybe, maybe tutored Jesus or tutored Karl Marx um, in terms of how to rebel against the state or how to protect capital. But when it comes when it comes down to it, you know these people didn't show up for us. These people were just pretty much, um, yeah. They they put their head down and they kept um, going with the status quo with whatever administrators were saying. Um, but on the other side, there's some faculty who really, you know, came out for us day in and day out. I mean, you you will see them at the picket light every single day. Um, and you know they were also doing organizing group around you know other faculty members as well. Whether it's you know recording the cops, whether it was. Um, just organizing around international students, undocumented students, um, just, you know, a lot of them, maybe maybe I would say no more than 20, 25 of them 
really showed up for us um, day in, day out, and the rest of them, that long-ass list of 400 people, man, they just disappeared off the face of the earth. Well, you mentioned the uh, uh, international students. Was it Santa Cruz that, that sent out the letter, essentially saying we're going to you know, notify yeah. ICE? Or, yeah, these, yeah. I mean, these, these folks are going to face uh, de facto uh, deportation, um, essentially just you know, without their student status. Um, they can't remain in the country. Right. Did that um, come from Napolitano? Of course. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's that's her experience, right? That's where she comes from. Sure. Well, no, no. She's an she's an Obama neoliberal. Sure, absolutely. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have folks from the from the Middle East that are supposed to go back to their country soon. We got folks from Australia. We have folks from Latin America, from Europe, just from all over the world. You know, these are some incredible, incre- incredible people. You know, um, smart, intelligent, and just. It's a shame that, you know, that it has to go down this way. But these are folks that um, stood up for, for what they believe in. And, you know, they're, they're walking away with the hell of high, with integrity on their side. Berkeley obviously has a tradition forever of being kind of, you know, one of the most radical institutions in, in the United States, right? And the free speech movement onward. Um, are you seeing something similar there with, like, kind of the level of support you're getting from faculty and others? Um, I don't know if uh, Kaylee can correct me, but I, uh, my sense is that, uh, it's very similar to what Carlos is saying, that you have a lot of people sort of saying that they're in solidarity, saying they're in support, and there's really just not as much action around it. I'd say of um, in Berkeley, like the most vocal people, faculty members have been like the African-American studies department who've really come out. Um, yeah. They're at the meetings, they're there having discussions with grad students about the strike, um, about COLA, um, and uh, I think Kaylee and I are, are um, in a good position. Our, the professor we're teaching for is very supportive um, and really committed to it. But otherwise, it's a lot of talk and not a lot of action amongst the faculty. Yeah. Similar to the faculty, how much of the undergrads have been supporting you? I have a, I have a friend of mine whose daughter goes to Santa Cruz, and my friend is an old radical lefty anarchist, and her daughter was raised not to cross picket lines, and so she didn't. She basically switched to a community college and joined, kept on the picket lines until... I guess campuses went online because of COVID, but like how much support are y'all seeing from the undergraduate students? Uh, all right, I'll go, I'll go again. <laughs> um, so, so out here we've seen, you know, a lot of rhetoric was thrown around, was thrown around by the administrators. So, you know, I've talked about us withholding grades after the review. Um, so a lot of the rhetoric was coming, coming out was that we're hurting undergrads that were, were being selfish, that were, you know, out there just to, to disrupt their education. Um, but the undergrads soon uh, quickly realized that that was all just you know, a bunch of bullshit. And a lot of them came out and been, they, they've been able to kind of discuss you know, what it means for them to see their graduate students, their TAs, out on strike. And you know, what, I, what I would tell my students is that you know, we spend a lot of time learning about you know, radical politics. You know, this is UC Santa Cruz. Um, we, you know, this is known for Gloria uh, Azandula, Angela Davis, you know, Hue, Huey P. Newton. It's, it has this, you know, another another rich tradition of, of sure, sure. radical activism, right? You see Santa Cruz. So, you know, what I tell them is that, you know, they, they teach us these things, but then as soon as we practice them, you know, we become criminals or we become some sort of uh, uh, deviants. You know, it's things that we learn in, in, in lectures, in sections. These are things that they're putting on the syllabus. So, so you know, this, this is just a way that... that that we're, you know, we're trying to get a message out by direct action, by civil disobedience. And a lot of these undergrads, man, they came out for us every single day as well. I mean, with, without them, I really think that this color movement um, wouldn't have gone as far as it would have. 
No, no, I, 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 I've known some people who would, you know, like canonize Huey Newton and Cesar Chavez, but if you actually tried to, to do what they did, you know, I'm, you know, I got nothing to do with that. I ain't playing that game. So, um, that, that, that's not surprising. So what are you, what are you looking for? What are your, you have a call and demand, right? Because obviously California is a really expensive place. Um, what, what precisely are you asking for demanding? And, um, is there something beyond just that kind of bread and butter issue? Are you, I mean, is you like, or do you have any issues with like class size or anything like that? Cause like here where, where, where we are at the university of Houston, I know there, there are several grad students right now kind of starting this process and part of it is, you know, they're, they're not getting paid enough, but part of it is their class sizes here. Or I said, I have uh, two TAs for 300 and I had had in the past, you know, I've had like two TAs for 400 students. So is there more than just this kind of COLA element to it? Yeah. So we um, are basically, we uh, again, for Berkeley, I'm not sure how the organizing has worked entirely at Santa Cruz, but Berkeley has been organized on a department by department basis. So uh, every department, there's 15 departments that are declare themselves strike ready, that are striking right now. Um, but I believe that most of them um, have three main demands, um, which uh, most of these are modeled upon the demands made by the first striking department that declared themselves ready at Berkeley, which was the Department of African-American Studies. And the demands that much, the, I think most of us, um, the departments, I haven't seen all of the letters, um, but they're threefold. One is the immediate uh, rehiring of the fired Santa Cruz workers. So that's really something for us that escalated our um, desire, you know, our, our strike was um, making, trying to get the fired students hired for the, the term. Um, the second demand was COLA. And then the third demand, of course, um, which is modeling off of what you see Santa Cruz has been um, calling for also, which is the demilitarization of campus police. And of course, maybe Carlos can speak more to about that, but that has been a core um, demand of the COLA movement as well. It's not just about uh, a cost of living adjustment, but it's really about a broader question about the way in which how, how funding is allocated um, on UC campuses. I saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was also this like, which led to the strike at Berkeley is like the spread the strike. And so we've seen that at UC Davis and UC Santa Barbara, I'm assuming similar demands circulated there too. Carlos, though, sorry to cut, sorry to jump in there. No, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's really good because um, maybe between the, the, the third week, the fourth week of the strike, I went on a little tour, I went on a little cooler tour. I visited campuses like Davis, um, UCLA, Santa Barbara, and I was also at Berkeley. Uh, during that during that rally and that march around um, the administrative building, so I was able to you know talk to some you know some cool people and kind of meet meet folks and see you know where the demands are coming from, and a lot of it initially um, what it seemed like was a uh, reactionary to what was happening in Santa Cruz, right? Just like oh yeah they're treating y'all like shit yeah we're gonna jump on in, but it's also like no you know um, the situation here at your UC at your living place is also messed up right. Um, we all need a cost of living adjustment, right? That's 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 what we've been pushing for uh, a cola for all. So it, it expands past graduate students where undergrads are able to relate to it, um, where our workers on campus, you know, our service workers are able to relate to it, where our lecturers, um, you know, people that are in constant precarity in this academic system, these are folks that, 
you know, have, have appointments, you know, with different universities, different community colleges at the same semester, same, same quarter system. And these are folks that are not guaranteed jobs, they're not guaranteed their benefits. Um, so, you know, folks that live in constant precarity. So what does a cost of living adjustment look like for these different sectors of the university system, um, as well as outside of the Avery Tower? So we've been able to do a lot of work with, you know, folks in um, Funa Bombs and, you know, the homeless union here at, in Santa Cruz. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much how, how we've been able to, go, to get the message across and, and spread the strike to, you know, as far as Berkeley, all the way to uh, San Diego, we've seen, uh, we've seen campaign actions. Um, I think Merced and Riverside, you know, these are universities that are not really, we don't really hear much from them, you know, for whatever reason, but pretty much we've, as, as, as well as UCSF, I think UCSF also had some sort of a little campaign. So we've seen actions and um, one more thing about the demands is that um, a lot of us see this institution as a, as a byproduct of white settler colonialism. So understanding that there are cops on campus that ICE is able to recruit our, on our universities. Um, so pretty much seeing how those systems of power play with one another and, you know, what our relationship is, you know, to the land. Here at UC Santa Cruz, a lot of us have made a commitment that, you know, once we win this COLA, it's going to go to the rightful owners of the land. You know, and our, on our, our opinion here is the, the Amamatsu, right? These are folks that who are, whose land we're sitting in, who are standing in, we're working in, where, you know, a lot of folks are making profit off of. So, you know, a lot of us came with that commitment a long time ago, proving that this is more than a COLA. Do you ever, um, are now, are you engaging the issue of like kind of just the general uh, way that the university creates priorities? Um, you don't want to pit students against each other, but obviously like STEM is going to be funded at a much different level than, than you know, the liberal arts. And um, one issue, the two things like, because students come up, there's about probably 10 of us at UH who students talk to when they have issues like this. There are about 10 of us who I think we would create, call ourselves credible and legit um, you know, we're not just, I think, you know, liberals talking the talk, but, uh, and, you know, we don't tell them what to do, but they ask for advice. And we often bring up, um, bread and butter issues like the cost of parking on campus, which is insane. It's now like for students who are already paying increasing fees and, and, and tuition, it's like six, $700 to park. And, and, and obviously one, one thing that, you know, and I grew up a jock, but the, 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 the funding on sports and, and facilities, is uh, we've just, uh, and, and the university won't release the real numbers, but they've just like built a new football stadium and football practice field and renovated the basketball arena. And that's, we're thinking at least a quarter billion dollars, right? And, you know, they, the uh, associate assistant football coach pool is 4.25 million, right? So are you kind of creating this kind of larger kind of picture of the, the neoliberal university? I think um, the the demands of the COLA are definitely bringing attention to the way that um, uh, to the UC and its priorities. I mean, I think most recently uh, COVID-19 has really highlighted its like desire to just sort of carry on as business as usual, um, to not consider you know, the stresses that we're all experiencing, not just faculty, students, undergrads, um, and its sort of reluctance to, to really address, um, you know, how this is all affecting us financially. Um, so I think, yeah, COVID is definitely bringing attention to that. But even before COVID, um, you know, I think the demand of demilitarizing the campus um, was definitely like a, a one of the central ways which we were um, addressing that problem. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, what I think as, a, as an educator, um, like I said, as a grad student, of course, you know, we all do our own research. That's why we're here. But also 
um, we take our teaching responsibilities really seriously. And uh, for me, one reason why the I think the COLA movement is so compelling is also because it speaks to the broader questions about how the how public education uh, is being run often, you know, really into the ground in this state and elsewhere as well. I mean, I'm Canadian, um, so I'm an international student, and I see the question of the funding um, of public education as not just an issue for the UC system or other parts, uh, you know, other states here in America, but also for places like Canada as well. And maybe just to return to one of the COLA demands as well, um, which I forgot to mention, was another demand was the elimination of single semester appointments for lecturers. So again, it's about the, the ways in which we've, I'm sure, you know, we all talk about is the way in which public education is changing, including not only the reduction of say like tenure track positions, but the increasing reliance on not just graduate students, but also um, lecturers who have also showed up for us in force and who have told their own stories about being paid annual salaries of like $19,000 a year. So this is a much broader issue too, which I think is an important part of um, at least how I, how I think about the yeah, just 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 to add on, um, the UC system dropped or UC Santa Cruz dropped um, three hundred thousand dollars a day on the cops, and yeah, I mean the first during the first two weeks of the of our, of our opening the strike, we had we had uh, UC UC police come from as far as Irvine, so we, we know we had folks from Berkeley, we had folks from from Davis, yeah, and like I said, as far as Irvine, as long as with, as long as long as as long with uh, Alameda County, so we had cops pretty much be shipped all over all over the state of California, just I, to police and surveil a bunch of students, right? Right. We would ask them like, I have a bunch of books and a laptop in my backpack. Like, what's what's the need for all this uh, armory, for the riot gear? You know, it, some sometimes it looked like they were going, they were getting ready for World War Three. I thought I thought that was called off, and they were out there. You know, they were out there ready to go. Like if it was a battlefield. From the from the just social media I saw, they were pretty aggressive at first. I saw yeah. where they attacked at least attacked a picket line at least once and yeah, arrested I mean, people. The very the very first day, um, they hit they hit another graduate student in the head um, about five times with a baton. You know, they gave her a concussion. Um, the very first day of our opening the strike, they also um, arrested an, an undergrad for delivering water. You know, to us the protesters. So I mean, we we saw the uh, the brutality, you know, within within the first day. I mean, these these cats were ready to to literally bash heads. Um, so the very first week, uh, they dropped about one point five million dollars. Uh, the second week, they 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 kept the same numbers. It was about three million, or about three million, because we had a holiday in there. So I mean, so this is this a uh, university that's you know dropping all this money, yet they don't want to give their you know their their graduate students. A cost of living adjustment, but but that I think also shows that this is really about control, money. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this is you see this in most labor situations where the amount they spend yep. on on suppressing the strike would yep. cover the the workers' demands, but then that would empower you guys, and then you know you would think that you know you you were part of this system, you were part of this community, and you would expect it, and no, they want to. Also, I just wondered, um, I know um, there's a lot of stuff like on the Vietnam era, which I study very closely, uh, regarding um, like anti-war protests on campus. And there was this real dynamic where they would send in like local police or even the National Guard, many of whom came from really like kind of poor working class communities. 
and saw grad students as kind of elitist, you know, like, and so there was this kind of class tension in, in, in that as all as well. And I just wonder if you ever kind of catch any of that where the UC system, especially, right? You guys have a an international national reputation, LTC, right? And the People's Republic of Berkeley and Santa Cruz, you know, like you said with Marcuse and Angela Davis. So. Um, are you catching kind of some of that flack as, you know, a bunch of elitist college kids, you don't know how lucky you have it. One of the most beautiful things that came out of the strike is my, my ability to have a conversation with uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal about the strike. He's a, he's a PhD student here as well oh, in, the, cool. in the History of Consciousness program. So, so I, had, I had, the you know, the opportunity to, uh, to be in conversation with him. And the message that I got from him is that, you know, after, regardless of where we're at in history, class is class and state violence is state violence. So given, given, that, given that idea, um, like with me, you know, I come from an immigrant community, from a single-parent single, single parent household. Um, so, you know, I was pretty much born and raised in poverty. Um, and here we are as, you know, you, and you told your whole life that in order to get out of poverty, you're supposed to, you know, go to school, get an education, get a degree, you know, become some sort of professional. Um, so here I am in this, you know, in this graduate program looking, you know, looking towards, you know, becoming a professor, getting a PhD, probably be the first one in my community to, to get one if I do get one, right? Because I'm, I'm facing expulsion now. Um, so here, here I am um, taking out these massive massive loans, right? Where if I do graduate from this program, I'm looking at $150,000, so $170,000 in debt. So we're talking about indebted servitude here where, you know, there's a job market that's almost non-existent. We talk about these lecturers, folks that are in constant precarity, driving from campus to campus, so you ask yourself, like, what really, what is really happening here? Um, am I going to trade one form of poverty for another? And at what cost, right? Yeah, no, and, and those numbers, if anybody out there listening doubts those numbers, I, I can attest because I, uh, I know I have friends who are grad students who are in that range of, of student loan debt. And they're getting there, like I said, I don't know if you heard me earlier, they're, you know, doing like nine classes at community colleges. I think they get like 2200 a pop. And um, they're getting their wages garnished, you know. So uh, it's uh, I was again very fortunate, you know. I my student loans were at like one or two percent, really minimal. And one of them I took out to buy a used car, wasn't even for education, you know, because it was cheaper than than I would get, you know, to buy a car. It was so, the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> we're looking, and we're looking at uh, and we're looking at these PhD programs that are about to be, you know, hundred percent online. That's actually not something that just affects you. Like I know, yeah, tenured colleagues, but. A lot of our grad students and our new professors, they're going to use this crisis to 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 go online. And then somebody wrote an article saying, "Botch your online courses," and like that's my that's what I've been telling everybody. Monkey wrench and just say you don't know how to do it because this has been a trend. You know, they've been escalating this the whole time to create <coughs> the University of Phoenix model. You know, where I mean, you can get a freaking MBA at Stanford online. You know, and Stanford is like Stanford, right? So. Um, um, and no, I think they're going to use this and exploit this crisis to to become even more kind of uh, uh, controlling and and to really. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the whole concept of tenure is gone in twenty years. You know. So I'm kind of curious, just to switch channels here a little bit, is like you know, uh, all the UCs went to online last week because of COVID nineteen. I mean, like here in the Bay Area. And actually, now the state of California, we're being told to shelter in place. We can only go to like essential, uh, only for like essentials, like grocery stores and 
doctor's offices and things like that. How is that affecting the strike? What have, how have y'all changed your tactics and strategies since, since that has come into place? Like, like Santa Cruz though, like right before all that happened, I saw where y'all blockaded the entire campus and shut it down. And it seemed like at Berkeley, y'all were kind of gearing up to do more like on the ground kind of direct action, civil disobedience sort of stuff. So how is that, what, what, how are y'all shifting gears? Not shifting gears, but like changing, changing your tactics. Yeah, um, at Berkeley, um, I, yeah, I don't know what has happened at Santa Cruz exactly, but um, we really just had to restructure the whole strike overnight. It was um, a, a really a, a dramatic event. Um, we had initially planned to, you know, sort of go out and pick it and demonstrate and disrupt the campus as much as possible, and then COVID-19 hit, and we really had to rethink how to do this online. Um, so we, um, the organizers, co organizers, um, shifted focus to, um, for the first week of the strike at least, and we made it a social welfare strike. So, um, you know, this has been really stressful for everyone, including undergrads, as well as um, TAs, um, teaching assistants who've not had any training in online teaching before, uh, something we've never experienced. So it was really stressful, and I think, um, well, Kaylee and I did, and some of the other um, GSIs in our course, is we really just took the time to like talk to students and check in with them. And like, uh, we didn't do any teaching. Um, we just sort of focused on well-being and solidarity. And it's like a really weird moment because a lot of our students are having to like flee home. A lot of them are international. They, you know, so much of their lives have been disrupted by this. Um, so yeah, we, we shifted. Um, a lot of the picket, a lot of the strike digitally, doing lots of online sort of Zoom events, uh, figuring out how not to use like university resources in respect to strike. Um, so it's been uh, an adjustment. I don't know if Haley wants to add anything to what we've been doing at Berkeley. Well, yeah. now are, online, are you still like kind of in, in um, so basically at, at Berkeley, like Carlos has been fired, right? You guys. Um, are you still getting paid? Um, are you still in any way engaging with your classes or anything like that? So we, I don't, and again, I don't want to speak on behalf of all the different departments, but for Carolina and I, at least we haven't received, we haven't, there's been no form of retaliation yet. Partly because I think the UC just has no idea what's like, because of COVID-19, yeah. um, everything has been disrupted already. So that's been an important conversation that we've been having across different departments about what does a strike look like in not only where everything's online when there is, but when there is no business as sort of usual. Yeah. Um, so we, like Carolina said, we are striking this week. We are um, withholding our labor in the traditional sense in that I'm, for example, not going to lectures, even though they're online, I'm not holding office hours, but nonetheless, um, we wanted to make sure that uh, we are uh, there for our students because the university also has positioned us as kind of the go-between the administration and the students. And we do all sorts of other kinds of laboring as well, including, for example, emotional labor during this time. So we've been check using sections, for example, this week to check in, like Carolina said, with our students, but just not specifically not talking about course materials. But it's an ongoing discussion. We're having meetings over next week is spring break as well. So we're meeting with other people who have been involved, you know, in the COLA movement to talk about precisely what does this strike look like? 
Um, one other thing Berkeley has done is also to target fundraising. So another issue about, of course, funding of universities is the increasing privatization of universities, including an increasing reliance on, on donors. So I was, uh, Caroline and I were both in a meeting um, with uh, Berkeley's chancellor, Chancellor Christ, a few weeks ago. And their solution to uh, the problem of COLA was, well, uh, we're just going to hire, we're just going to take less grad students so we can pay them more, which is problematic for all sorts of reasons that we can talk about. But the other thing they said is, well, we're going to pay them more, not through increasing, for example, government spending on education, but by um, relying on philanthropy. So this past week, there is a big fundraising campaign that happens every year at Berkeley. So there's been a big uh, kind of COLA has been trying to target that by um, raising awareness about COLA demands and encouraging um, potential donors not to donate to the UC and specific departments, but actually to um, the COLA movement itself. Yeah, it's difficult being online because I know one good target's always like, you know, kind of uh, fundraising events at the president's mansion or outside the, you know, the tailgater at the football game or something like that. And you guys can't do that now. Um, let me take just a nanosecond break to say this is the Green and Red podcast. And uh, we thank you for listening. We just started this recently and we're getting some really good feedback and some good listener numbers. Uh, so we're on Anchor, Spotify, Apple. Uh, you can visit a lot of different places, a lot of different platforms. Uh, like us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're really like us, you can send us a, a few pennies. We do have some uh, technical costs associated with this on Patreon. So we, we thank you for listening. Um, Carlos, uh, uh, you've been fired. So you're in a kind of a different situation uh, uh, than, than uh, Kaylee and, and, and Catalina right now. And not only, um, you know, has this been an employment issue with you, but also you're a student. And so do you want to talk about like kind of how they've uh, addressed your particular situation that way and what they've also, what have they done uh, about those 80 people who they fired? I mean, do they, how are those classes being conducted? Do they have scabs coming in or, you know, what are they doing on that? So. Yeah. So our, our, our dual, um, our dual relationship with the university, right. As workers. Um, so as a, as a worker, they pretty much, you know, terminated the, the little livelihood that we were fighting for, you know, these $2,000 after taxes like, like that we've been talking about. Um, have pretty much been taken away from me along with the health insurance. Uh, even though, you know, the UAW came out a few nights ago and said that it's going to be reinstated. We'll, we'll see what comes out of it. So yeah, now, now as a student, they're coming after, you know, my, my status. Um, I've received uh, three student conduct charges within, within 10 days um, from themselves. And, you know, essentially what, what's happening now is that I'm suspended from, from being on campus. Not that anyone has any business being on campus now because of COVID, right? But yeah, so if, if, if I'm caught being on campus, um, UCPD has the right to arrest me uh, along with, you know, filing some criminal charges against me. Um, and and what, are the what are the grounds from keeping you from campus? What are the grounds? Well, they, they claim that I am um, a menace, you know, to the university, uh, that my presence will pretty much um, fuel some sort of, um, you know, destruction towards their property or, you know, cause some sort of disturbance. And that I willfully, you know, engage in this. So, so is myself. Is like a university thing, or is it a Title IX thing, or how are they? This, 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 uh, this, this from the Office of, of Student Conduct. Okay. You no, know, so this is uh, this is just the student relationship of it. 
Um, it's so it's myself along with maybe three, four other folks. But I happen to be the one with you know the most student conduct charges, while other people just have one. Um, and these are strike. These are all strike related activities. You know whether it's standing in the streets. You know with hundreds of other people, including faculty members, undergrads, lecturers. You know workers from campus. These are things that we all partook in. You know, but this is um, focusing on certain individuals that they claim to be you know part of the leadership. When we know that, you know, we're all leaders in this and there's right. no one person making decisions for anybody. You know, this is a, a horizontal movement. Now, and how are they handling the, the classes for the 80 people who they terminated? Um, so from my understanding, there's um, administrators have called on to department chairs to pretty much, you know, put the pressure back on um, the faculty of record, the instructors of record, where they're forced to find, you know, some sort of uh, evaluators, assessment of assessments or evaluator specialists. So these are folks that are supposed to grade and give the feedback back to the students. Um, so, you know, they're pretty much doing my job, right? That's what I was brought in to do. So these are, you know, scabs and in, in every single, you know, sense of the word. Are, are the um, professors complying with that? Are they, are they, uh, I imagine that some are, I imagine that some are, um, yeah. my relationship with a lot of professors has been, uh, broken. Yes. Um, yeah. I honestly, I have no respect for pretty much 90% of my faculty. None of them, but two of them have stepped up, you know, have asked me how, how I was doing or right. checking in with my other, other uh, fired folks in the department. Um, other than that, it's been radio silence from a lot of them. Right. They kind of just let this happen and just moved away from it. Um, these are folks that, you know, have nothing to lose. Essentially, these are tenure track faculty members. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Believe me, I, I know. <laughs> these folks have nothing to lose. Uh, I've had disciplinary action. <laughs> Um, well, mouse. Um, if you were in my field, I tell you to 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 come to the University of Houston, but I can't speak for my colleagues. So, and I think I think I think it's worth to note that a lot of people that came out um came out swinging um have been you know mostly people of color, marginalized people, whether it's queer folks, uh, native folks, black folks. Uh, we talk about you know the um the, the African studies is it, or the black the black studies and over at Berkeley, here in my department, um out of two of us that withheld grades in the fall. Only three of us got fired, meaning that we withheld after after the deadlines from Jen Napolitano. And the three of us were, you know, were people of color. We're three brown, three brown folks out of out of four or five people of color in the whole department. So to me, this speaks volumes, right? That um, a lot of us that come from poverty, we know the urgency that comes with, you know, getting a cost of living adjustment. Well, we know the urgency of being able to make this university. Um, accessible for people like us that come from our communities. So I think that's worth noting as well. Yeah, if I could just add really quickly, it's really frustrating, um, like uh, being a person of color in the UC system, because there's so much emphasis on um, diversity and bringing in more diverse populations, um, diversifying the UC, um, but yet there's this refusal to acknowledge that um, the with that, you can have diversity, but you can't have it without sort of financial security. <laughs> it's those, those things need to come together um, in order to, to really, you know, encourage uh, people of color and other people from different marginalized sort of populations to, to come into the academy. We can't survive in this institution without financial security. So, yeah, I think that's a really frustrating part about this whole thing and you know talking to administrators and they're like <laughs> you know the budgets they're tight they're complicated we can't find the money we have to go through philanthropy and it's it's, it's just refusal to see the the like structural inequalities that are built into the system and then they fire you and ban you from campus for speaking up and acting up <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> which i think has been like really um like 
central for why I think we've got a lot of undergrad support. Um, I've seen, I've heard so many undergrads of color really like express their solidarity because they see that the intersections of financial precarity and the policing of like black and brown bodies happening in their own campus. Like mm -hmm. they call these places home now and like they, they, they see the ways that our existence is being denied. So, yeah. Have, have your campuses been totally shut down now? Like what about students who, you know, don't have a place to go? I mean, are they, they're not allowed in the dorms. They're, they're kind of just cast off international students or, so for Berkeley, at least, students um, have, so for undergrad students in dorms, they can stay there, but they've also given them sort of the option to break their lease. So at least the students that I checked in yesterday when I had the, so, uh, you know, as a part of our social welfare strike yesterday, uh, that's been going on this week, most students have gone back home. But I do want to point out that by bringing everything on, uh, by sort of taking the university online, how this has raised all sorts of new issues, not only for undergrad students, but also for uh, the graduate, graduate student workers. So for example, workers who, uh, because they're paid, you know, under $2,000 a month, live in very, very small quarters with roommates or with family members. So, I mean, how are, how are we supposed to teach and do all of our, you know, our, our, our research and our administrative responsibilities as well when we also don't have, for example, appropriate housing to do this. So I think that COVID-19, and this is something that we've been having a lot of discussions at Berkeley at least, has been that they're not two separate issues, of course, but the question of worker and student, student precarity has only been exacerbated by the shutdown of campus and by taking everything online. Are there uh, like cafeterias open for students? Uh, I mean, can they eat, do they, do they get meals? I mean, a lot of people, you know, that's, they get lunch, they get breakfast. And I mean, even, you know, obviously at a high schools everywhere, the whole country. I mean, this is more than an educational system. It's mm -hmm. in many ways like this broad social welfare system. From what I understand, I think they've reduced sort of operations to the absolute bare minimum. So, um, I know, I think I might have read in an email that they're um, shutting down most of the dorms and sort of trying to consolidate people into a couple. Um, and I'm assuming they're doing the same sort of for the cafeterias and yeah. dining halls. Now, are you, Kaylee and, and Carolina, are you prepared to like not turn in grades at the end of the semester? Is that kind of... I mean, I think that there's on there's just an, a lot of ongoing discussions at uh, at uh, Berkeley across departments, um, and I'm not trying to sort of sit on the fence about things, but it's just we declared ourselves strike ready um, and declared the strike at a, at a really different time, and so I think all of us, I mean, we're really committed to our not being in solidarity with the fired students, but also. Um, fighting for a, for a cola for demilitarization of campus police, but we don't know what's going to happen. And one thing, for example, again with this changing context, is there's a lot of talks um, that we've been hearing about by the administration deciding, for example, to do pass no pass, um, partly because of just again COVID. But I mean, there's a lot of speculation about um, you know how that might also undermine the strike. So yeah. Yeah. professors can, can easily do that. <laughs> exactly. Like how could we can't uh, the, the sort of 
a, a key part of our labor is grade, not only grading, like giving a grade, but also giving important feedback, which actually, you know, helps students, right? Um, but if we go to pass, no pass, um, I don't know what's going to happen. But to, on the other side, however, there's also graduate students who are striking, who also say, look, like, maybe, you know, this is all like, this helps with our labor demands too, especially there's students and <coughs> workers that are really struggling to take care of family members to find places to live and whatnot. So it's really complicated. And I, I, we're just trying to navigate that really day by day. I, uh, we're kind of like heading to like the end of our questions. Um, the one last question that I had on my list that we didn't really touch on is like, is it just like wild prediction of what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of weeks and months? I mean, do we have, we have strikes, we have now all this with COVID-19. Do you see administrations moving? Do you see, like, I know that uh, Napolitano is supposed to, she's retiring or resigning in August. I saw, I don't know if that's still going to happen. I'm, I'm just kind of curious if y'all have any like thoughts about like what the future holds for the, for the strikes at the UCs. Um, the way the way I see it is that you know because of this all this this COVID stuff, um, I feel like a lot of the a lot of the collective anger, the collective dissent has, has now kind of been isolating, where a lot of us are kind of just forced into our homes, forced into our little corners, our little cubicles, if if you know if you will. So I think it's just a matter of time for us to kind of reassess the situation and kind of pick up where we left off, right? Just kind of um, you know. Not, not bending, not breaking like water and being able to uh, to organize and mobilize and really, you know, take another jab at it um, in the future. Um, just seeing how this spread out throughout the UCs is just, you know, that's that's a victory in, in and of itself as well. You know, having other folks being able to to relate to the struggle and be able to push it on their own campuses. To me, that's that's a victory as well. Yeah, and the last question I'd have is like, um, obviously, we are in a, a uh, economic cataclysm as well as this public health crisis. And, um, you know, last week, uh, unemployment claims doubled and, and uh, I, you know, sober minded people are suggesting the unemployment rate might go to 20%. So how do you go out there and convince a country on the verge of depression, perhaps, uh, that uh, um, college uh, education is an important labor issue and, and that you guys are serving like a really important social function. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, you know, like I said, there is this kind of, you know, called the elitist and, you know, uh, you're not really workers. I mean, how many, how many hours a week do you put in being, uh, uh, in your job for like what, 500 bucks a week? Well, how many hours are you doing? You know, more than they pay us. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> Um, I don't know the, the figure off the top of my head. But it's, a, it's, yeah. it's a lot. My point is you guys are making like yeah. probably minimum wage if you think of it that way, you know. Um, yeah. But how do you how do you talk to people and say, hey, even though we're not, you know, like building cars and one of construction workers and we're not teamsters, like what we're doing really has this really vital social function and you need to like, you know, we're allies. I mean, I think fundamentally we're we're educators. Like, I all uh, grad students come for to to graduate programs for a whole range of different reasons. Um, but I think all of us, especially us who are teaching, are there. We're not here just to do our own research, but we're here because we believe in teaching 
And, and for me, that's an incredibly important uh, social role. And if anything, COVID-19 has, I think, demonstrated the, the need for um, real like insight, not discussion, but thinking and conversation around these really pressing issues, like I said, about, uh, about worker precarity, student precarity, um, that, are, are, that aren't separate from my role as a, as a PhD student at all. Well, uh, again, speaking as a professor, um, TAs uh, make our jobs possible because if we were uh, told to grade uh, 150 blue books, um, I think we'd be given uh, online true-false tests, you know. So um, I, I wish you luck and, and uh, a lot of respect for what you're doing. And uh, uh, these are tough times, so hang in there. And, um, uh, you know, maybe uh, down the road we'll have you guys back on talking about uh, how you won this thing. So hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, I just want to I just want to say that y'all y'all's work has, has been like an inspiration. I would actually say that the, the the strike actions I've been watching for the last month or two. I don't even remember how long ago it started now because the time has lost a little bit of all uh, meaning for me in the last week. But like you know the the sort of like I'm, I come from a background of organizing direct action. I work at Environmental Org where we run direct action campaigns, and just like I've done everything I can to kind of push out those like hey, climate, like I work in the climate movement, hey, climate movement, look at these labor actions that are happening in the UCs. You know, they're doing pretty hardcore direct action at Santa Cruz. All of these other campuses are declaring strikes and solidarity. You know, we need to build this sort of like movement of solidarity where we like are intersecting social justice, labor, as well as environmental and climate issues. And I just want to voice my appreciation about yeah. how great y'all are. And, uh, you know, remember, this is a time of great fear, but the, uh, the ruling class is using this, right, to, to exploit the situation and, and gain more control, you know. And so it's easy to be afraid and say, oh, we better not try anything. But, you know, you guys actually have leverage. I mean, these are the moments, I think, when it's time to kind of increase the pressure. And it's harder, like, much harder to do when you can't physically confront the, the, the forces of, of order. But, um, you know, I think it's important we all remember that, that even though we're in this crisis, the ruling class has been exposed. There, there are frailties, there are weaknesses. It's actually kind of been discredited. So, um, you know, as much as possible, you know, have communities, start food banks. You can have virtual online, you know, seminars and classes just to teach the general public, make it available out there. I know Scott and I are doing that right now. Yeah. So uh, good luck. We're also just doing this to pass our time. So we're just pass our time. We're going to start actually having a, kind of like a online classes. I'm, I think I'm going to do a history of the Vietnam War, you know, uh, on this. You know, just to kind yeah. of yeah, it is a lot with me, especially I'm on leave. I was in Italy until three weeks ago. I was a visiting professor, oh, wow. so um, you know I, I should be there right now teaching in Venice. But uh, um, but but there's a lot of stuff you can do, and I know it's difficult and precarity. I don't have to worry about that anymore, thankfully. I haven't worried about precarity for decades, right? Uh, and I know that's a very real thing, especially for graduate students. So, um, you know, hang in there and and, and and see you guys were great. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you all. Yeah. 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 And for our, for our folks out there listening, this is Green and Red Podcast. We've been joined by Carlos, Kaylee, and Carolina, uh, striking grad students at, the, at UC Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley. Uh, if you want to learn more about green and red, 
You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And also, uh, we have a patreon.com account, patreon.com backslash green red podcast. If you want to become a patron, uh, we have now four, a mighty donor base of four people. And thank so we want to, yeah, thank, thanks to all of them. And uh, they're our friends. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, tune in again because we'll have another episode soon. Yeah, give us feedback. And if you have any suggestions for a show, uh, throw that our way too. So. Uh, thanks and uh, in solidarity to the uh, UC strikers. Yeah.